Well, hello. Hopefully you have had the opportunity now to read through the passage from Luke chapter 3, um, a time or two, and retell that in your own words. And after I share a few thoughts on this, um, you will take some time to discuss the passage and talk about the things that we learn about God and ourselves through this passage and some application. Um, if you're not involved in those discussions and the additional readings that we have on Wednesdays currently, um, you're missing a good chunk of our learning gathering. And so if you're just watching this podcast, you're not learning it like we intend for you to learn the passage and apply the passage. So please, if at all possible, try to make it on the, the Zoom call at 7.30 p.m. Um, in, if you're in L.A. or 7 p.m. here at my home, uh, if you're here in Lenore City, and um, we'll, we'll together learn the passage better than just listening to some guy like me talk about some of the details of it. So Luke chapter 3 is where we are tonight. I'll give you just kind of a few historical kind of notes on what's going on here to better understand what's happening. Um, you see at the beginning of this passage, a very specific time period is mentioned with all of these different rulers. Um, again, just to, to say this is actual people, this is real history, but it kind of moves from a broad focus of leadership with Caesar, who's the, the Roman uh, emperor, the second Roman emperor, um, to, it kind of narrows in. Pontius Pilate is the, the governor or prefect of Judea, a, a, a smaller portion than all of Rome, and then Herod, who's kind of a king of sorts in a smaller little area of Judea called Galilee. Um, and it talks about two high priests at the time. You have Caiaphas and you have Annas. Caiaphas was the actual high priest. Annas, his father-in-law, still had quite a bit of influence. And so they mentioned both of those. But this is happening. Uh, Luke is drawing our attention to a specific period of time, which we can actually narrow down um, to about probably 28, 29 AD is what we're talking about here. Why such specificity right here at the beginning of this chapter well, when Jesus began his public ministry, it was the beginning of a new age. Jesus says later in the book of Luke in chapter 16 that he said the law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist, the focus of this chapter, since then, the good news, or since then, uh, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So there's a shift something new happening here when John the Baptist comes on the scene. It's so new that verse 5 in chapter 3 says, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. So in a sense, metaphorically, all of creation is responding to this moment, kind of bending or coming into alignment, paving the way like John for God's salvation to appear in the Messiah, Jesus. The, the solution to the problem of sin is happening now in this new age. And so when writers are describing key moments in history like this, you kind of mention what else is going on and who's ruling at the time. This cosmic shift is happening when the work of Jesus is beginning. And that shift demands a response. So in preparation for that new age, John is proclaiming, it says, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, what is John's baptism? There's some confusion about, uh, about this, and we don't know exactly all the details of it. Um, certainly in Judaism, uh, they were familiar with different sorts of ceremonial washings or cleansings, right? You can read about some of those in the Old Testament. If you, if you touched something that was dead or blood, or if you had disease, or if you were menstruating, you, you had to become cleansed of that so that you could then be again in the presence of, of God, so to speak. 
Um, and so there are all these cleansings. There's also metaphorical language that was often used, especially in the prophets, talking about the, the necessity to kind of wash yourselves clean from any immorality that you have. John's baptism, kind of in that context, from what we can understand and what we read here, is kind of twofold, at least. It's a baptism of, of repentance, which kind of involves, I've, I've sinned and I'm going to turn away from that. And related to that, it's also a baptism of preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, one commentator I read said, John's primary interest is in calling people out of normal social existence in order to align themselves fundamentally with God's eschatological or, or end age redemptive purposes. So now is the time, John is saying with this baptism, to repent, to turn your heart to God because a new age is coming in the Messiah. So prepare yourselves, wash yourselves. And they were doing a physical representation of that. In verse 16 then, John talks about a baptism that will later be administered by Jesus, different than John's baptism. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's two ways that people understand that. One is that Jesus would bring one new kind of baptism, a baptism with the spirit and fire, okay? For that, people usually look to the day of Pentecost. We read about in Acts chapter 2. Uh, here's what we read. Suddenly there came from heaven on the disciples the sound of a rushing wind. It filled the entire house. Listen, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in those tongues or other languages. And so... There's this event that happens that seems to be what John the Baptist was describing earlier. That's a baptism with spirit and fire that happens on that day. Another possible interpretation is that Jesus would bring with him. His baptism was kind of two different kinds of baptism. Baptism with the spirit for those who repent and baptism of fire for those who don't or who will experience his divine judgment. Um, the first, with the Spirit, again, would be talking probably about Pentecost. The second would be talking about something like what Luke describes in, in chapter 12, where Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that were already be kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished, Jesus says. So there seems to be there maybe some sort of baptism with fire. So baptism with spirit and baptism with fire, two different baptisms maybe that Jesus would bring. I kind of think it's that latter option because of the context of this beginning part of the book of Luke. There's so much here that talks about kind of the positive and negative, the division that Jesus brings, the fall and the rising of many, the bringing down and the lifting up. And even here, there's those we read about who don't bear fruit who are going to be thrown into the fire. That's the same word. And especially in verse 17, and in our very context here where it talks about Jesus baptizing with spirit and fire, um, look at what it says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, talking about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So it sounds like he's doing two different things with two types of people. So I think that's probably what baptism with the Holy Spirit, one on one people, and baptism with the fire is on another. But regardless how you take that, John the Baptist was presenting the work of Jesus as much more significant than his own work. John was simply preparing people with a baptism of repentance for the coming of the one who will bring eternal consequence 
the spirit and fire. And um, another thing to be said about baptism, just we now, as, as you guys know, um, post-resurrection of Jesus, we do what we call believer's baptism, which kind of relates to both John and Jesus' type of baptism. Um, this is a, uh, a baptism. We get baptized in water when we first repent, when we first turn to God. It's a one-time thing, like John's baptism seems to have been. Um, that's what baptism means, to be immersed. We do that when we believe. Um, but that baptism is more even significant than John's baptism because we live after that Pentecost event where we've now been baptized into a new kind of relationship with God, which includes the indwelling and constant empowering of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. So we are talk a lot about the Great Commission, right? Baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So I like to say that believer's baptism that we participate in at our local church fellowship churches um, is, is a, a baptism of repentance and relationship. Because we turn from our sin and we enter into actual union with the Lord because we know him and we're filled now forever by his spirit. Okay, That's our believer's baptism, which we think is demonstrated in the book of Acts after Pentecost. So... What John was doing was preparing people through repentance for this new age when we could experience really the baptism of Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. Something else that John the Baptist and Luke apparently want to make clear is that this is not mere baptism, but it's a baptism of repentance. There's a fake version of baptism, a baptism that lacks repentance. Um, baptism itself, as a just a religious ritual, it doesn't accomplish anything, except maybe you get washed off of some of your dirt. Um, but it's, it, it's not just a religious rite. The Jews should have known from all of their prophets, hey, God doesn't just want you to go through these routines or these sacraments, but he wants a heart that is truly turned away from sin and toward him, which in time necessarily, according to John the Baptist, produces what? Fruit. Okay, so some people might have thought, it seems some did here, because they were Jews, they were the people of Israel, they were the, the blessed children of Abraham, that they're ready for the Messiah. But John calls them the brood of vipers, kind of saying, hey, you're following the, the serpent, the devil, and you're under the wrath of God. It doesn't matter that you're a Jew, that's not going to save you from the wrath. The Jews, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would kind of wear that Jewishness as a badge, feeling like they were promised salvation for that. But John's saying salvation comes to those who repent toward God, not to those who wear some religious badge of, of heritage or of rituals that they perform. And that true repentance necessarily produces fruit, which the crowds understand because they're the next thing they say is, okay, what should we do then? Like, what should our fruit be? And John gives some examples. It'd probably be good in our discussion to talk about those examples a little bit. I'd point out that the examples of what we are to do um, are primarily here about how we treat other people. That's some genuine fruit of repentance. So John's calling for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, why is this baptism even needed? Why is any baptism needed? Why would anybody desire to be baptized by John? Why would somebody desire to have the forgiveness of sins? To be prepared for that? 
one of the key themes of the book of Luke is salvation, or the act of being saved. Saved from what? Why is salvation needed? Maybe the Jews were thinking salvation from Rome to where we could be our own people again. We're not looked down upon. But what's Luke suggesting? Throughout the whole book, we'll see he's suggesting salvation from the state that you find yourself in. You, as a result of sin. Like the, the problem isn't just out there, what's happening to you. The problem is in you. And it's in everyone. And it brings consequence to everyone. So in verse 7 to the crowds, Jesus says, who warned you, or John, who warned you to flee from the wrath that's coming? In verse 9, there's an axe coming to chop down some trees that are going to be thrown into a fire, even you, Israel. In verse 17, there's a, a, a winnowing coming where the leftover chaff is going to be burned with unquenchable fire. You need salvation from that judgment, from that fire, from that wrath. Uh, just if you don't know, I had to kind of refresh my memory on this, but what is what is that winnowing fork? How does that work? It's just the, the process of, of gathering grain. So you have the wheat that grows and you cut it uh, with a sickle, right? And then that wheat is placed on a threshing floor, a hard surface, and it's walked on or tread on um, by humans or by animals to kind of loosen the, the, um, the grain from the, from the husk of the wheat and then it's been kind of loosened and then you take this winnowing fork and you stick it under there and you throw it up into the air and all of the chaff which is lighter kind of the leafy leftovers flies away in the wind and the grain falls to the ground because it's heavier you want to pull out the grain so the grain can be used for bread or whatever and so you toss it up into the air the grain falls to the ground that you can collect the rest of the chaff blows away but john says since that chaff is no good it's going to be burned with fire. So salvation is what Jesus is providing, what John is preparing people for, salvation from wrath, salvation from fire, which is reserved for those who refuse to genuinely repent. And how interesting I think it is, you know, we don't like talking about fire, hellfire and brimstone, but in the midst of all this language, this hor horrifying language, burning with fire, Luke says in uh, verse 18, look what he says. With many other exhortations, John preached good news. <laughs> it's good news. This is an opportunity for rescue from what is already upon you because of your sin. It's not Jesus bringing additional bad news. No, that judgment is already placed on everybody. The wrath of God is already placed on everybody because of their sin. And so what, what John is preparing for and what Jesus is bringing is actually good news. It's rescue out of that. And that good news is open to everyone because Jesus, as we've been learning, is the, the savior for all people. All flesh, it says in verse 6, quoting from Isaiah, shall see the salvation of God. Not just the religious people, all flesh. That's the ministry of John the Baptist, preparing people for the coming of the, the good news of Jesus Christ, of salvation for anyone who would repent and believe. Um, the last thing we kind of learn about John is that Herod put John in prison because John was calling Herod also to repentance. Herod, who um, 
probably considered himself a Jew, he, even though he's in this rulership position, he's still in need of the forgiveness of sins. And what had happened there, the Herodian dynasty was filled with a bunch of familial connections and marriages and ugh, um, basically Herod, Herod Antipas, um, not Herod the Great, but one of his sons, Herod Antipas, um, was the half-brother of Philip, who's mentioned at the beginning there as well at this chapter. And Philip was married to Herodias. Okay, that's Philip married to Herodias, who happened to be Philip's half-niece through, through another kind of brother. Um, well, she ended that marriage to her half-uncle, Philip, to marry Herod, Antipas, who was another half-uncle then, and also he was her half-brother-in-law. Okay, I don't know if you could even follow that. I don't even know if I said it all right. But Herod and Herodias enter into this. They both leave their marriages to enter into this just odd and forbidden by Leviticus marriage. And so there's lots going wrong here. And John confronts that in Herod. Um, and he's thrown into prison because of it. And later, um, spoiler alert, he, we're going to find out he dies. Um, the focus of the story from this point on really switches to Jesus. It's almost as if... Um, Luke wanted to give kind of this detail of John the Baptist out of the way so he can focus on the person of Jesus. So we come to Jesus' baptism. Just a couple of quick things I want to point out about that. It's a great place to go for confirmation of, of the Trinity, God as, as one God existing in three distinct persons, right? Um, we don't believe in modalism where God is one person that just kind of shows up at different times and different modes or different manifestations, but he is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all mentioned in verse 22, and the Spirit comes down upon Jesus, and the Father says with this man, I'm well pleased. Um, it's one God, but in three persons. How does that work? I don't know. I won't try to tell you because I don't know. Um, but this is a good place to see all three persons at work at the same time. Uh, we also see in Jesus' baptism confirmation that he's the son of God. He had said that he was calling God father in the earlier chapter, uh, but this is kind of God's endorsement of him as his son. And something maybe interesting to talk about in the discussion, if you've got the time, is that Jesus wasn't baptized because he needed to himself repent for the forgiveness of his sins. He didn't have any. We saw last time that he was the perfect child throughout his entire life, he did all things right. So he didn't have any sin to be forgiven of. Um, he was even God himself. So why did he get baptized? I think that's a fair question for us to ask. Maybe you can discuss that if you have time. The genealogy, don't worry. I'm not going to uh, work through that. Um, I'll point out a couple of key names there. We see Joseph, of course, who it says was the supposed father of Jesus first there. Um, though not his true father, like we've already seen. Um, if you work your way down, eventually in verse 31, you get to David. So we see that Jesus um, has a right to the, the throne of, the, of David. So he's going to be the fulfillment of the covenant with David. Um, shortly after that, Jesse, um, Jesus is called to the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. It's called the root of Jesse. Um, so that's Jesus. Um, Judah, we see in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of Judah. Okay. Um, we see Abraham shortly after that. 
The book of Genesis tells us that in Abraham's offspring, all the nations would be blessed. So, so Jesus being his offspring would, be, would bless all of the nations. Um, uh, one of the uh, people in there, Eber, in verse 35, just so you know, a lot of people, that's, they think that's where we get the name Hebrew, Eber. Um, that's where the Hebrews kind of came out of their line. Um, very key verse that I want you to remember, maybe even memorize, is Luke 337. It's worth your time. This very critical character you see there. Not Methuselah, not Enoch. Jared. Okay, he's right there. Um, very important person. Kind of kidding. That's my name if you're unfamiliar with who I am. Um, Adam, this is going all the way back to the beginning. And remember, in Adam and Eve's offspring um, would come the one who would defeat the serpent. We read all the way back at the beginning of Genesis. Um, so some key people there. Luke's genealogy is different than Matthew. Uh, there's lots of um, different names actually in there, tons of different names. Well, why would that be if it's just saying kind of a heritage or genealogy? Um, some people say Luke's is more kind of Mary's line and uh, Matthew's is Joseph's line. Um, I'm not sure I'm sold on that because it literally starts with Joseph here in Luke. Um, some people say it has it's the natural line versus kind of a royal line through David. Um, somebody say it's kind of his physical or biological line through a legal line where um, legally you'd have Leverite marriages where, you know, a, a brother would die and his, uh, uh, his brother would take on that wife and kind of be a father to their future children. And so there's some adoption type things going on there. And so it's hard to... To, to know like what exact line is being traced here. Um, but there's, you can look online and find the different ways that people will um, explain that. It makes some pretty good sense. Um, another way that it's different, these genealogies, Luke and Matthew, is that Matthew stops with Abraham and Luke's goes, as we've seen, all the way back to Adam. And I think the reason for that is a little easier to ascertain. Luke had a special interest in writing this Gentile Theophilus in showing that Jesus wasn't just a representative of Israel, the children of Abraham, but he was the representative of all people, all the way back to Adam, the son of God, right? So the, the Hebrews or the Israelites, Jews, they'd split off from Abraham, but there's a lot of other people in the world. And God's plan is to reach the ends of the earth, all nations, the entire creation we saw is responding to this moment of the Messiah's arrival. And it's for all people, not just the Jews. In this genealogy, there's Jews, there's non-Jews. There's great people, there's not so great people. There's known figures, there's unknown figures that are only literally mentioned right here in this genealogy. It's all kinds of people. So again, to end here, at this moment in time, as Jesus is bursting onto the scene at his baptism, which I'm so excited for next week, because we'll finally kind of get into the adult life of Jesus and his public ministry. At this time, all creation is kind of coming into focus. The mountains, the valleys, and all people, no matter what their background, are, are coming into focus because a new age has dawned and John has prepared the way and Jesus is coming now to be the savior for all people.